Well, while you're finding Song of Solomon chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 14, let me tell you the story of two boats. And this story is somewhat of a true story. It's based on observations I made when I lived in central Texas about two types of boat owners. Lots of people there own small motor boats for use on the area lakes, and you didn't have to be wealthy to own a boat. Income was not really a factor in whether you owned a boat or not. And so the story of two boats is a comparison, really, of two types of boat owners. The first boat had its name painted on the side in chipped paint, and it was called Maintained. Maintained worked. It would not sink, didn't look that great, and it usually smelled like whatever fish were caught on the last trip. The seats were ripped in places, there was a crack in one of the windshields, and the name of the boat was faded and chipping. Maintained got the job done, though. The engine was a little rough, but the owners got back to shore almost every single time. Maintained spent a lot of time alone. Her owners pretty much only paid attention to her when They needed to. Most of the time, she was just parked out in the driveway, not even covered to be protected from the sun. But maintained would look pensively and contemplatively down the street at a second boat. The second boat was down the street, and she was called Nurtured. Nurtured has everything maintained had, a boat in working order that did the job, but Unlike maintained, nurtured received lots of attention. Nurtured was sleek and polished. Nurtured's owner was out there every day, carefully taking the cover off, then working on this or that, making certain the motor was in top condition. And if there was nothing to fix, then nurtured got a wash and polish. The owner would polish the chrome fixtures and shine the mirrors and windshields and even spray and wipe down all the seats with conditioner to keep the seats well-conditioned and in good shape. Both maintained and nurtured floated. They could get their owners from one shore to another. But while maintained was, well, maintained, nurtured was loved and cherished. Our scene today in Song of Solomon has to do with the observations of a budding relationship, a growing relationship between Solomon and the love of his life that we've called Shulamith from chapter 6, verse 13, which gives us evidence of a proper name, Shulamith. And today we see that their relationship and eventually their marriage will more resemble the boat nurtured. It'll be nurtured. They're going to make an effort at their relationship and not just coast on the emotion of love on the excitement of physical attraction, they're not going to coast on what used to be. The name of their marriage will not be painted in chipped, fading paint. And so today we're going to talk about nurturing togetherness, nurturing the oneness that God created marriage to be. Now, as in many of the passages in Song of Solomon, there's an actual scene, there's something happening, and so let's set the scene here that's happening in chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Solomon and Shulamith have been separated for some time now. The winter season separated them, and, but winter has passed now. In the winter, the tenant farmers of the area in Jerusalem had less work to do, and because of this, there was some freedom to even travel for the winter. And you recall that Shulamith was in a family of tenant farmers working in a vineyard owned by Solomon. 
Now, we haven't mentioned this yet, but in chapter 4, Shulamith is said to be from southern Lebanon, just to the north of Jerusalem. And so either she's home in southern Lebanon at the family home, at the, the large family home, and, or now her family is closer back to Jerusalem, or maybe uh, the, the, if she's in southern Lebanon, it could be that Solomon has made the trek to see her now that winter has passed. Wherever she is, the story is not really affected, but there's pretty good evidence that she has gone north for the winter and she's still there at the family home. Now, we should note briefly that there's a very clear structural boundary from chapter 2, verse 8, through the end of the chapter to verse 17, which I'm choosing to take in two parts. The repetition of the terms mountains and gazelles at the beginning and at the end of this section uh, act as what's called an inclusio. It's a, a literary similarity which acts as bookends. It tells you this is a section. It marks off a very clear area. And so we're taking this in two parts. The first part, verses 8 through 14 or so, is the story of Solomon's invitation to Shulamith to nurture their love. And the second part, verses 15 through 17, is when Shulamith is asking Solomon to leave in order to protect their love. We're going to deal with the invitation of their nurture to nurture their love first, and then next time we'll deal with the protection of their love. When she says, you need to leave before we do something we regret. And so Solomon is approaching Shulamith's family home. We're going to use this text to teach us how to nurture and feed your relationship in three ways. How to nurture and feed your relationship in three ways. And these are very simple. The first one is delight one another. Delight one another. And here he comes. Verse 8. This is Shulamith speaking in her own heart. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. Now, this is an indication of a physical condition that Shulamith has. And that physical condition is that her heart is pounding right now. She hasn't seen Solomon in months. And she says to herself, the voice of my beloved. Now, this could mean that she's actually hearing him call out to her or it could just be the sound of him approaching the house. Perhaps he sent a note or sent some sort of message that he'll be coming soon. In either case, it causes excitement. It causes joy for Shulamith. And he's said to be leaping over the mountains and bounding over the hills. Now, this isn't just poetic. In a time where people walked miles and miles every day to get everywhere, Solomon running through the foothills would not be unusual. We do note that in Hebrew poetry, mountains and hills often refer metaphorically to obstacles, to things to be overcome. But we don't have to make that assumption here. Shulamith lived and worked in the vineyards of the hill country around Jerusalem, and even if she's home in southern Lebanon to the north, that's foothill country as well. So it could be that he's just approaching through that country. But it does speak to his eagerness to see her, that he's not trudging up a hill, he's running up the hill. His anticipation of being reunited to his beloved. Verse 9, she says, My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. He's a gazelle or a young stag. The parallel passage structurally in the whole psalm, the whole uh, song rather, is chapter 8 verse 14 where she tells Solomon to hurry like a gazelle. 
And so what's the point here of him being like a gazelle or a young stag? Well, part of the point is speed and agility and youthfulness. It shows her eagerness to see him as well. But it's interesting. He doesn't come knock on the front door. He doesn't even make himself widely known to the household. He's standing behind the wall of the family home. And this would be a home with a wall around it. He's looking through the windows and the lattices. This is either speaking the windows in the wall around the house itself, or maybe looking from beyond the wall down into the courtyard into the windows. Lattices were built around windows for shade and to provide a little coolness. And it says here that he is gazing through the windows. We want to be clear, he's not a peeping Solomon. He is respectfully waiting for her. And by the way, by inference, he's respecting her parents as well, even though she's of marriageable age. But why is he waiting outside? And bigger question, why is she still inside? Why isn't she running out to greet him? Well, as we'll see in a moment, there's a shyness. There's an uncertainty that's set in. It's not a lack of love, just a lack of familiarity. They need to get to know one another again. But first, let's deal with the fact that there's most definitely a mutual delight in their reconnection. Notice that the text does not say, the voice of my beloved, oh no, why is he here? There's eagerness, there's delight for both of them. There's a sense of, of growing anticipation. In fact, in verse 9, she says, Behold, there he stands. This is in Hebrew, an exclamation of, of awe that he's here. He's really, really here. It's really him. It's not a dream. He's built a reputation for himself in her mind. He's like a gazelle or a young stag. These images are used in poetry all over the ancient Near East to depict a man of vigor, a man of vitality, and a man of character. Solomon has earned this assessment. He's manly, yet approachable, and her first thoughts are complementary toward him. For her, she's disciplined her mind to think the best, even though they have been apart for some time. You know that she says, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. She does not say, my beloved is like a lazy sloth or a grumpy bear or a sarcastic hyena or a controlling lion or a dishonest snake. No, he's a gazelle, swift and masculine, yet gentle and accessible, approachable. And so they are delighting one another. There's such a simple question that we could ask ourselves as married couples and, and also a great question to ask yourself as a yet-to-be-married person, perhaps in pursuit of love. Here's the question. Does my approach cause a smile or a groan? Does my approach cause a smile or a groan? Does my approach conjure up images of love and joy or a groan of distress because I'm going to say something negative or complain or see the other as only someone to... Do things for me. It would be a lot less poetic if Shulamith exclaimed, Behold, the groan and grunt of my man. Behold, he comes, scratching his armpit and yawning through the door. And in the same way, it would be a lot less poetic if she said, My beloved is like a demoralized child dragging his feet to my door because he knows the words of my mouth will drain the life from his very soul. Obviously, when the fires of new love burn brightly and excitement to see one another comes very naturally, but over time, sometimes it needs to become an act of discipline to decide beforehand how you'll greet one another, how you'll interact with one another, how you will delight one another. 
And I think it's reasonable to say that, that you, as the most important person in the world, isn't it reasonable that, that for your spouse, that you should engender a smile when you approach? That the pattern of delighting one another is ingrained in your communication together. And this goes both ways. This is both res- responsibility of husband and wife to greet one another with joy, to have a smile, to have a tender touch, to don't start right off with a negative list of all the terrible things in your mind. Very simply, be a person that your spouse becomes eager to see. And if you're hoping to find a spouse, be a person that the person you're hoping to make your spouse is eager to see. Because eventually somebody will say, you know, I I want to be with this person because I'm eager to see him or her. Now, if I could bring to life our imaginary boats maintained and nurtured, when maintained sees her owner coming, she knows it's because he has a use for her. But when nurtured sees her owner coming, she knows it's because he has a love for her. Big difference, isn't there? So the first way to nurture and feed your relationship, delight one another. The second way, encourage one another. Encourage one another. Verse 10. My beloved speaks and says to me. And so this is Shulamith saying what Solomon said. These are the first words actually spoken to one another here in, the, in this entire section. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. This is an invitation to spend the day in the countryside with him. For them to be together. Shulamith is narrating what Solomon said to her. He doesn't want to come into the house. He wants her to go away with him into the countryside for the day. Now, let me give you a little side cultural note here that uh, this culture was not bound to watches and clocks and even calendars at, at the level that we are. If Solomon had been invited into the home, here's how this would have gone. It, would have been, it wouldn't have been, hello, I'm here to pick up Shulamith and we'll see you at 10 o'clock. It would have been, hello, and they would have said, oh, it's nice to see you. You should stay for breakfast. And then after breakfast, they would say, oh, look, the morning has gotten away from us. You should rest and stay for lunch. And then after lunch, oh, it's so hot out right now. You should, you should have a nap and you should stay for dinner. And he would have been there all day. And him and Shulamith just dying to get out together. So he didn't even go inside. He, if they had had glass windows, he would have been throwing pebbles at the windows. Saying, come on, you come out here. If I run into your parents, we're doomed. And so he's trying to lure her out with the appeal of the new spring. In verse 12, the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. In this verse, he gives three indications of, of spring. The blossoms are in bloom, wildflowers all over the countryside in early spring. And even today, Israel is one of the greatest sites for wildflowers in the whole world. It's a time of singing. Singing, who's singing? The birds are singing. It's springtime. This area in the Middle East, by the way, has more migrating birds than any place on earth. And then the turtle dove, as an example, the turtle dove is cooing. They migrate back to Israel in April every year. And so we know this is April. The spring is really just getting going here. And he had said that the rain is over and gone. Most of the rain in Israel happens during the winter time. By the way, you notice that he says at the end of verse 12 that the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Now, in this verse, 
This common Hebrew word for land occurs in Song of Solomon only twice, and both of them are in this verse. First of all, the flowers appear on the earth. This is the same Hebrew word as Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This means the ground. But the second appearance, still in this verse, and the only two times in all of the book, is very interesting. It's a plural possessive. In other words, He says, it's the voice of the turtle dove is heard in the land of us, in our land. What does he mean by this? Well, at the very least, it could be him saying this, the land is ours to enjoy. But we have a pretty good hint that he's saying more than that. Chapter three, verse 11 says, go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon. What he's saying is, is that If she will still marry him, this is our land. This belongs to us. He continues his appeal for her to come out to him. Verse 13, the fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. And once again, he gives the invitation, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Early figs begin appearing in April. The vineyards are blossoming. They'll have flowers. No grapes yet, but they'll have the flowers. And by the way, just a little side note here. All the accuracy of the the agriculture and the bird patterns point to this being a real story with real timing and real chronology. This isn't just a made-up love poem with no reference to reality. This is a story that happens in space and time. Look how he's encouraged her. In verse 10, He says, my beloved speaks. This is her speaking, rather. My beloved speaks and says to me. Now, this is interesting. When she says, my beloved speaks, this is what's called a dialogue formula. In other words, Solomon is answering something that she said. We don't know what she said. It doesn't say here. Maybe she said, why are you here? Or maybe she said, it's about time. I've missed you. But she said something and he is responding now. And so he calls her my love, my beautiful one, literally my my companion, my mate, my special friend. I came all this way just for you. He's enticing her from behind the wall to come to a more private place to be alone. And the message he's sending her is you are a prize and I want you all to myself. You notice how how he encourages her, how he entices her. He uses smell and sound and sight and taste. The, the, the sight of the flower, the smell of the vines in, in bloom, the sound of the singing birds, the cooing turtle doves. He's romancing her. And there is a subtle reference here to the ripening of love. He says that the vines are in blossom. The vine or the vineyard is used metaphorically in the Song of Solomon as the woman's body, chapter 1 and in chapter 8, and metaphorically of the readying and ripening of love. In chapter 7, the subtle message here is that love is ripening, love is ready. And so he's romancing her. Now, we shouldn't take this as somehow romance is the duty of the man only. That's a, that's a cultural notion that's inaccurate scripturally. Later on in the poem, we'll see her equally romancing him as well, encouraging him. Now, remember from chapter 1, Shulamith has not had an easy life. She has difficult brothers who worked her like a man. She hasn't been able to be feminine and take care of herself. She's not a pampered princess at all. And so Solomon is encouraging her to take a time of escape with him. And this is so important for both 
husbands and wives, to encourage one another. You need to encourage one another to, to trust the Lord, to let it be okay to enjoy life, to not let the worries of the world grip you. You need one another for that. And part of your roles as spouses is to point out the blue sky, to point out the blossoming flowers, to point out the good things of life, to free one another to romance. And more importantly, how important it is to encourage one another in the Lord that God is big and our problems are small, that God is always rewarding faithful obedience, that God has given you to help your spouse, that you are a gift. When was the last time you told your spouse, I am God's gift to you. How can I be worthy of being that gift? That the mercies of the Lord never end. That great is His faithfulness. That the Word of God is living and active and powerful. That that prayer soothes the troubled soul and invokes the power of God on your behalf. It may be that during certain times your spouse simply needs you to weep with him, weep with her, and to sit and to be together. To be an encourager. By the way, for all the not yet married people listening, if you're trying to win the heart of someone, being an encourager is a great way to build confidence in the other that being around you is a blessing. And if you do that enough times, then that person says, I would like to be around this person who's a blessing to me all the time. But Solomon has a specific reason for encouraging her to come out with him. They need to reestablish their comfort level together. They need to enjoy one another. And she's hesitant. She's uncertain. So how do we resolve this? How do we know that she's hesitant, she's uncertain? Well, let's get to that in a moment. The first way to nurture and feed your relationship, delight one another. The second way, encourage one another. And the third way to nurture and feed your relationship, seek one another. Seek one another. Verse 14, how do we know that she's hesitant? Because this is what he describes. Verse 14, O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Solomon sweetly calls Shulamith my dove. He said in chapter 1 verse 15 that her eyes are like doves. This is referring to her character. But here there's a different flavor. There's a different tone. What she's referring to, or he's referring to rather, is her hesitancy. The fact that she's debating whether it's a good idea to go out to him or not. She's in hiding, as it were. Jeremiah 48, 28 is very helpful. Jeremiah 48, 28 characterizes the dove as one who nests and hides in the sides of the cliff for total safety. And so his focus here is on drawing her out. Now, why is this maybe a hesitancy for her? Well, in verses 15 and 16, which we'll look at next time, What we'll see is that they're going to be discussing potential difficulties between them. And in verse 17, there's also a strong sexual attraction that she's guarding diligently to stay pure for for marriage. And so there's some tension here. And so she's pictured as emotionally reserved right now. She's in hiding. She's guarding herself. And so he's enticing her. Look at the birds. Listen to them. And look at the the doves. and, And look at the vineyards and the flowers. But when he says, let me see your face, it's a little bit more precise in Hebrew to say, let me see your form. 
In fact, it's plural. Let me see your forms. Let me see you in person. Let me see all of who you are. This isn't sexual at all. This is wanting to see her as a person. And he wants to hear her voice. In other words, he wants in-person alone time with her to be assured that all is right between them. And, and yes, to deal with potential difficulties in their relationship. To go out to the country and do their own sort of premarital counseling, we might call it. And so he says she's like the dove in the clefts or the nooks of the rock in the crannies, which are long, narrow crevices or, or breaks in the rock of a cliff. Just a side note, if anybody has ever told you to look in every nook and cranny, this is where it comes from, right here. But in context, what Solomon is really saying is, come out and be together with me. Don't hide anymore. Be honest, be open, be real. Open yourself to me and I will open myself to you. Oh, this is so important. He's seeking her whole personhood. He wants to know all about her. He wants to be emotionally and mentally and spiritually close to her. He's treating her as a human being with dreams and hopes and loves and fears. And you notice that he says, let me hear your voice. In other words, not just the sound of her voice, but hearing what she has to say, seeking her very heart. This is very hard to do between two sinners, but a glorious marriage can be had when both spouses have a genuine interest in truly listening to the other one, not making assumptions, not guessing, just hearing. Let me hear your voice. And you know what this seeking one another communicates? Listen carefully. It communicates, I love who you are, not who I wish you would be. That's a great message to send. Because the more you seek to know the other, the more you love the other person, the more you're, you're loving the real person, not the made up person, not the never made the cut fantasy person that you wish the other one was. That stops love. That drives a wedge in love. How do you know when you truly heard your spouse? Very simple. When they tell you that you have. When they tell you. I want to point out something so very important. At the end of verse 14, he says, For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Your form, your whole personhood, all of who you are is lovely. What does this say? This says acceptance. This says not being a nagging Nelly or a nitpicking Nolan. How many marriages would instantly improve vastly with just some effort at truly hearing one another and not continually correcting non-sin issues? Your husband is the person God made him to be. Your wife is the person God made her to be. Don't commit spiritual adultery by wishing he was someone else or wishing that she was someone else. It's a waste of time. How beautiful Solomon's approach to Shulamith is. How tender and how patient and how kind. Let me ask three self-probing questions for us to ponder together because this really brings up a lot of issues. And so let me ask three questions. I'd like to spend the rest of our time really applying this text. The first question, just to kind of ask ourselves here, which boat do you want your marriage to be? Do you want to be maintained or nurtured? Lots of believers learn how to maintain their marriage. Now, how about seeking the one flesh, one heart nurturing that God has intended? How about going beyond just a functional marriage that works, that coasts on a love that you felt 30 years ago? 
Question number two, and this is a hard question. Only you can answer this in your own heart. At what point will you repent of the spiritual adultery of wishing your spouse was someone else? Or so radically different that he or she might as well be somebody else? I think it would be so sad to stand before the Lord and for us to lose heavenly reward because you worshiped at the idol of wanting the improved version of your spouse instead of simply loving and nurturing the other one, loving and nurturing the person God gave you. And question number three, what personal effort are you going to put into nurturing your marriage beyond just maintenance? And how will you stay consistent with this? What are you going to do? And I would urge you, don't give up. Don't think, well, those, ga- those, those days are gone. They don't have to be. That's your choice. I've seen couples married five years that act like they're 109 years old. And I've seen couples married 60 years that are still so excited to see one another because they delight in each other and they encourage one another. I'd like to give you three assignments and one biblical example. And these will take a bit of time, but I want to really nail this down. Three assignments and one biblical example. I told you I'd give assignments for this and we're going to turn this study into a Bible study down the road with these assignments. Assignment number one, you can probably figure these out. Ask your spouse, what would delight you when we interact, especially when we're greeting one another? What would delight you when we interact, especially when we're greeting one another? This can set the tone for hours or even days to come. The power of a smile, of of a simple, meaningful touch, of real eye contact, of taking the time for a meaningful kiss hello. I promise this will not make your marriage worse if you consider this question. Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor I've referenced before, he wrote about our wives. He said, quote, Remember that women are ordinarily affectionate, passionate creatures, and as they love much themselves, so they expect much love from you. In other words, our wives are built to love everyone and everything around them, and they need to be loved in return. And so assignment number one, ask your spouse what would delight you when we interact. Assignment number two, ask your spouse, how can I consistently encourage you? How can I consistently encourage you? What encourages you the most? For some, it might be words of encouragement. For others, it might be actions. Anything from his favorite meal to her favorite psalm being read to her. Wouldn't it be a terrific marriage if your goal, and by the way, if your calendar reflected this as well, if your goal was to encourage one another. And don't make the common mistake of trying to encourage the way you want to be encouraged. Find out how the other person wants to be encouraged. It's different than you. What does it mean to encourage? It means to give courage. It means to give strength, to give motivation. And assignment number three, Make time to seek one another, particularly in the area of meaningful talking and listening. Make time to seek one another. I can guarantee you that in many marriages, even long-lasting marriages, spouses still feel misunderstood because the other one has never really gotten it about certain things, never truly heard the deepest heart of hearts. And so make that time. Now, I know that right now there could be some discouragement if you're already tempted to think, my spouse is never going to even come close to this. That's not even in the realm of reality. But could I remind all of us that changing the other person and even having a better marriage is not the ultimate point? The ultimate goal 
is to please our Savior, isn't it? He's the inventor of marriage. And so to honor God by you doing these things, to give God glory for allowing you to be sanctified and to be made more like Christ by doing your part to nurture and to build your marriage. Those are three assignments. I'd like to spend the rest of our time showing you an example, a final example. Let's go to the New Testament. Turn with me to a familiar passage, to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll use this passage to close out our time together. I'd like to show you a stunning example of a spouse consumed with pleasing God. And we can prove from this text that this spouse is consumed with pleasing God. Now this particular example, these commands, they're focused on a wife pleasing her husband. But that's not what I'm going to focus on because the principle of nurturing the marriage to the glory of God here applies across the board regardless of whether it's a husband or a wife. Now, just to remind ourselves of the background of 1 Peter, Peter's giving admonitions to the church of Jesus Christ concerning how to live in light of the persecutions that the church is going through or about to go through, the persecution and the trials they're facing. They're living in a world that hates Christianity, that hates the church. Kind of sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? But what's so surprising and absolutely refreshing about the book of 1 Peter is that Peter's basic answer to the question, how do we live in the light of the persecution of the church? His basic answer is found in chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What simplicity, what elegance. How do I deal with a world that's falling apart? How do I deal with a world that hates me, that hates my Lord, that hates the church? Obey God. Be holy. In the regular, everyday things of life, including marriage. And look at this remarkable example of a spouse consumed with pleasing God in the light of a world filled with persecution. 1 Peter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. I'm not going to focus on the role of the wife in a godly marriage and in godly submission, although that's clearly the primary focus of the text. But I want to focus on her actions being based on what verse 5 calls she's a holy woman who hopes in God. Already we see that her focus is is upward, it's heavenward, it's Godward. And look how she nurtures her marriage. And I'll give you four ways that she does this. First of all, her actions speak louder than words. Her actions speak louder than words. This is a situation where a wife has a husband who does not obey the word. Verse 1. Some take this as an unsaved husband. Others take it as a disobedient husband saved husband and actually the ambiguity the lack of clarity here is very helpful because the wife is not charged with trying to find out whether her husband is saved or not she doesn't have to understand what the spiritual condition is we just know that at some level he's disobedient 
And so what is she doing? She's winning him. Again, some take this winning him as winning him to salvation, but we know it's the Holy Spirit who affects salvation. If that's the case, then the idea here is that he's observing what a truly changed life looks like, and from a human standpoint, he becomes more open to the gospel. That is certainly viable. I've personally witnessed this dynamic, and that dynamic is represented even in marriages here within our church, where the godly one changes, the the godly changes in one spouse got the attention of the other. Or it may be that she's simply winning him over to a tenderness and to an investment in their marriage or winning him over to determining to pay more attention to his own conduct as a believer. In any case, the stunning surprise here is that it is her actions, not her words, which are winning him over. Interesting phrase, it's only used one time in the New Testament, that they may be one without a word. Not a word. Now, don't take this as a principle that words are never necessary or words are never helpful. It's not what what Peter's saying here. But we do take it as a principle that words of destruction and harm are never helpful. They never improve a marriage relationship. No husband or wife can demean and damage and verbally harangue a marriage into being better, into being godlier. So her actions are speaking. And how are her actions speaking? Here's the second way that she nurtures. Her conduct is respectful. In verse 2, her conduct is respectful. In the context of her role as a godly wife, this is speaking primarily the same thing that Paul said in Ephesians 5.33, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. But again, why is she respectful? Verse 5, she's a holy woman who hopes in God. That's her motivation. In fact, we could give a more literal translation from Greek that she is not just respectful in her conduct, she is fearful in her conduct. Not fearful of her husband, but fearful of God. She conducts herself in a win-his-heart fashion. motivated by her worship of God, by her fear of God. I'm doing this out of fear and love and worship and veneration of my God. The third way she's nurturing her marriage, her conduct is pure. Her conduct is pure. This speaks to the motive of her heart. It speaks of innocence, not guile, not manipulation. What do we mean by this? Well, put it this way, she's not conducting herself in a kind and godly fashion to manipulate her husband or to get her agenda accomplished. She's purely and honestly, simply winning his heart without a word because it's the right thing to do, because it pleases God. It's not to get what she wants. How do you know when a spouse is trying to win the other one for selfish reasons? Because they give up pretty quickly when it doesn't quote unquote work. And finally, she's nurturing her marriage by demonstrating patient Christ-like character. She demonstrates patient Christ-like character. And again, we're not focused on the wife here. Any spouse can do this. Verse 4, her life is adorned by her gentle and quiet spirit. In other words, she's seeking what's precious in God's sight. That's her motive. That's her drive. Did you catch that in verse 4? Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And where's the focus? Which in God's sight is very precious. This is amazing. I want you to know this here, that her spouse sort of fades into the background. He's not the point. 
The focus is what will please God? What will bring, what does it mean to please God? It means to bring, same root word, pleasure to God by means of your obedience. You start with him in the foreground. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And he fades. A gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. One day, maintained, saw something curious. The owner of Nurtured had walked down the street and was talking to the owner of Maintained. And there was a spark of hope that lit up in Maintained. The little spark plug in the engine went, boop, something's going to happen. And as it turns out, the owner of Maintained simply didn't know how to care for and how to nurture a boat. The owner of Nurtured was giving the owner of Maintained some tips and even some products And here came the owner of Maintained. And this time he came and started polishing the chrome and washing the filth off and scrubbing the deck and the engine got a tune-up. And the owner came and took a tool and scraped the name Maintained off and with a fresh coat of paint, painted the name Cherished instead. Can I put it this way for you? You may have years to cherish your marriage. You may have months to cherish your marriage. You may have days to cherish your marriage. You don't know. Why not honor the Lord by nurturing God's gift of your relationship? Amen? Let's be pleasing to the Lord in that way. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time we've had together. We thank you for the word of God, which is clear. Thank you for your gift of marriage, Lord. It is difficult when two sinners come together to try to work out how to live a life in concert with one another. And yet, as we've seen so far in the Song of Solomon, it really is on earth one of the greatest representations of a pre-fall Garden of Eden. A place of joy and delight and safety and warmth and love and kindness and cherishing and nurturing. And so, Lord, I pray for all who are listening to this, who are married. I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would step it up, that we would be those who delight one another, that we would be those who encourage one another. Lord, we pray that we would be those that are are so kind and so delighted in one another that our love grows, not just for the sake of having a good marriage, but for the sake of pleasing our God who created marriage as a reflection of the relationship not only between Christ and the church, between God and His people, but also a reflection of the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that closeness, that unity. And Lord, for those among us and those listening who are yet to be married and who are still seeking that special person, we pray for your help for them. We pray that they would learn, that they would grow that they would be an encouraging type of person, that they would be a person that makes the other feel safe and nurtured and special, and that you would form new marriages, Lord, even out of this series. Lord, I pray that our church as a whole would honor you by being characterized by having marriages that are strong, that are built upon the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and that reflect all the very highest ideals presented here in Song of Solomon. Also that the true Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, might receive glory and honor as we reflect His will and His purposes. We pray in His name. Amen.